Well, hello again. I'm Tony Payne. And I'm Philip Jensen. And welcome to our last Two Ways News edition for this year. Well, just for this year. We're coming back again, we, we hope. We are. We'll be back in the new year. And a little bit later on, I'll tell you what will be happening between now and the new year when we're back on the air. But for this, our final edition for 2022, it's going to be a bit of one of those end-of-year editions where we look back a little bit on some good books we've read this year, on some books you might like to read over the summer. We're going to deal with a few of your questions, and we're going to talk about Christmas and this end-of-year kind of time that it is and how we think about it as Christians and how we make use of it in ministry. But before we get there, Philip, there's been a couple of really great comments and questions that have come in about recent editions, and I'll just let you know what they are, and there's one or two of them for you to respond to. First of all, on the religious wars topic that we dealt with just a couple of weeks ago, um, we've had a couple of um, reader comments. One is from Christopher, really just saying thank you, but if you want to chase it further, he's got a great book for us to chase up, which I'd heard of, but which I've never read. It's by William Kavanagh. It's called The Myths of Religious Violence. Uh, And Christopher says, before reading this book, I was quite concerned by the accusation. After reading the book, the idea was laughable for the two reasons below. One, religion is an undefinable category. And two, even if not, religion is just empirically not a primary cause of many wars. And so pretty much the kind of argument we are running. So if you want to chase it further you can uh, chase up William Kavanagh's book, The Myths of Religious Violence. Sounds like an interesting read. I haven't uh, ever heard of it either. Mm. But you also had someone get in touch with you uh, about this question as well, you were saying. Yes, I I saw, and just reading and thinking about it before we came and talked together, uh, about some university study about 10, 15 years ago, which had looked through all the wars of history and tried to work out what percentage of them were caused by religion. It came to a very, very low number. Um, I didn't have time to look it up, but uh, as this person has written, has contacted me and said, did I know about this research? I thought, well, maybe I need to go back and check that. But it's one of the things to look at over summer. There's a project for you over summer. Chase up that study and come well, back for to us. one of us. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll see how this works. All right, another question, this time on the topic from last week, which was about working together in unity with people, about what we stand for and who we stand with and so on. Uh, the question comes from Fane. He says, thank you for this insightful piece. Well, that's nice. As a matter of interest, could you have evangelical fellowship with gospel-believing Arminians? Now, just for believers, we need to clarify we're saying Armenians, not Armenians. No, we love the Armenians. They're wonderful people, yes. (laughs) Um, But what about Arminians, that is, people who don't take a a Calvinist view of predestination and election and so on? Can we have gospel fellowship, and if so, how, with people who believe that? Well, go back to our axiom. We can work with people in as much and only in as much as we agree with them. And with many Arminians, we agree about vast amount of the gospel about who Jesus is, about the Trinity, about the word of God saving people, about the the death of Jesus and his resurrection. This, this, we agree with Arminians much more than we disagree on, on the gospel. But yet Arminianism does spin off into a whole range of areas where we are in some disagreement especially the importance of human response to the gospel as opposed to the proclamation of the gospel. And so the Arminian evangelist can put too much emphasis on response and its need 
and be pushed in ways of evangelising which are very unhelpful. And so, yes, we can work with Arminians. Billy Graham was an Arminian theologically in his gospel preaching and to the blessings of many people, not the least to myself. And me. So it's not as if we won't hear the gospel from an Arminian, but yet working together does lead us into some difficulties. And I know in later years when I worked in a crusade with the Billy Graham organisation, there were tensions about how we go about doing the work because of those differences that came from the theology of Arminianism. Thanks for that, Philip. And do keep those questions and comments coming in. It's great to hear from you and to correspond with you and to deal with some of those questions uh, in our episodes here each week. And I'll be saying a little bit more about that later on, particularly for our members, that is for those who are members of the Supporters Club for Two Ways News. There's a particular Q&A coming up for you in the next little while but that I'll mention later on. But Please, everybody, do keep writing. You can just get in touch at tonyjpain at me.com. That comes through to me. Or you can just hit reply to the email that comes uh, to your inbox each week if you're a signed-up subscriber, if you're on the list for Two Ways News. But, Philip, this week I was thinking it would be good to talk about Christmas. It would be good to talk about what a strange kind of appealing and yet unappealing season it is for us as Christians. Hmm. And the ways in which it just keeps kind of changing in our increasingly secular society. It's an unusual sort of time. It's a happy time and a strange kind of time. Yep. It's been an issue of ambivalence for me basically all my life. As a child, I loved Christmas. And when I got converted, I realised that uh, Christmas was part of the cultural Christianity from which I'd just been converted. And so... Do I now have nothing to do with Christmas or or how do I use Christmas? It, even as a teenager, I had terrible trouble coping with uh, carol services in our church. I remember I just thought this has got nothing to do really with the gospel, even though it's Christmas. Uh, I found it very strange. Um, you know, one week we had the Masonic service, the next week we had carol service and it was pretty much the same. And I thought... This sentimentality and distortion of the gospel has nothing to do with the gospel that I was just being converted by, and so I found it very difficult. The other end of the spectrum, I spent 10 years as the dean of a cathedral running Christmas carol services, Christmas services, uh, um, you know, 10, 12 Christmas services in a couple of weeks I'd be running each year. So I was responsible for conducting that. So there's a shift over a lifetime, but it wasn't a shift of hypocrisy, it was a shift of ambivalence. I find Christmas difficult. It is a strange time for us because at one level, it's the one time of the year, with the possible exception of Easter, but that's probably gone, but it's the one time of the year when, in a sense, there's a permission to talk about Christianity and and Jesus, and we're celebrating something that we Christians I think is important. So we kind of feel like we want to jump up and down and say it's the one time of the year when when we, we still get something of a mention, and yet the nature of the mention that Christianity gets at this time of the year just seems increasingly to be contentless. No, I don't think we've got the permission to speak about it. I think we ruin people's Christmas when we speak about Jesus. 
We were away on holidays a week or two back and Helen went to send Christmas cards to people and so as she's a great letter writer and uh, so she went to the post office, the local post office, couldn't find any Christmas cards that were actually Christian. They were all about Santa Claus and other things and reindeers and everything but, but Christianity and inside the only Christian message was Happy Christmas, which you know that was the best you could come up with. When she went to buy some stamps, she asked for the religious stamps for this year's, and the post office person said, well, there really aren't any this year. And so she looked through all the stamps that were available for Helen, and she said, well, is this one? It says Noel. That was the most Christian one that she could come up with, just the word Noel, which most people haven't got the faintest clue what it means, other than we have a first Noel in one of the carols, which is actually spelled differently, if you remember. So... Anyway, Helen was about to buy these and the woman said, oh, no, 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 there's there's one here. Here's the religious one. It's got a reindeer. (laughs) That was was the religious one for the year, the one that had the reindeer on it. Was it it a converted reindeer? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I know I was cross. Uh. (laughs) It would be about days. That's a dad joke, isn't it? So, you know, and then I went shopping when I came back to Sydney and I noticed a big shopping... uh, I won't say which one, which now has taken, you know, the reason for the season and turned it around. And its advertisements this year is the season is the reason. Apart from the fact that that's stupid, it it actually is now actually purposely, intentionally got rid of Christ. Purchasing gifts has got to do with, well, the season is the reason. And we listen to the ABC, classical station, and they tell us about the Alleluia chorus, you know, Messiah sung at Christmas time, which is in itself strange, seeing it's actually about Easter. But people do sing Messiah at Christmas, and you go, well, that's religious. But of course, they're not interested in what Messiah is about. They're interested in the music. Not that I've always loved that that station because they, they, whenever they do anything Christian, they make sure it's in German or Latin so that no one understands that it's Christian. It's it's just about the music. It's got nothing to do with the words that inspired the music and the composer. Anyway, Messiah now they've got a new setting of it which has got sleigh bells in it, and I thought, well, there you go. If you you got to include sleigh bells in the Alleluia chorus you really haven't got the foggiest clue what it's about. So we've got a rapidly, well, a rapidly and inexorably changing society, one in which whatever Christian structures or foundations there may once have been for this holiday season are being, if not if not leeching away, being actively removed. How do we respond to a, a society that's changing like this as Christians? Well, we've got to understand it in itself. That is, in the mid-20th century... What we had was cultural Christianity. That's what you were converted out of, you were saying Converted before. out of it. It celebrates Christmas with nativity scenes and with Santa Claus. It was all kind of muddled in together. But there was also conviction Christianity, which celebrates the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that God became man as the prelude to Easter when he is crucified and rises to establish the kingdom of God for eternity. But most of us celebrated confused Christianity. That is, we celebrated the incarnation, but, well, we enjoyed the Christmas fun. That's Christian. Fun is Christian, and it was right to do so. But we celebrated the Christian fun 
with the totally non-Christian, irrelevant Christianity about Santa Claus and trees and and wrapping presents with baubles on them, which, well, they're part of the fun, but yet it was all confused up. And it, it didn't matter because, well, fun is fun. I mean, so we ate magnificent puddings with threepenny bits in, uh, which you can't do now because modern currency would poison you. But in those days, and you got your... It was fun. And we're celebrating something that's wonderful and celebrating should be done with fun. So but you're saying that... confused. Right. So you're saying that the, the Christianity of... When are we talking about? We're talking about the 50s, 1950s. 1960s. It's at one level cultural... You've got, hang on, you've got alliteration going here. You've got, it's cultural. <laughs> yes, I'm a preacher. <laughs> there, there, was, there was some convictional Christianity yes. though as well. People who, gen, there was a genuine belief about what yeah. the Christmas season and of course, represented. from its Puritan background, wouldn't celebrate Christmas. Yes. Because they only celebrated the incarnation. And there was a kind of muddled, confused Christianity that kind of mixed the two together in a sense. Yeah. And kind of ended That's up right. with a fairly vapid contentless sort of... Well, but it was there. We really did believe in Jesus Christ. There were people who would be offended by the phrase Xmas. Yeah. Right? Because that... No, no, it's Christmas. But at the same time, Christmas was other things that uh, had very little to do with Christianity other than joy, which is very Christian. You don't want to celebrate in a way that doesn't have any joy or, or... Good food. Good food's part of God's creation that we're to receive with thanksgiving and prayer. So it's nothing wrong with doing it. It just got confused. And the confusion meant that when society shifted away from cultural Christianity, Christmas got destroyed for conviction Christians. That is, the society retains Christmas for lots of reasons. Uh, the government's declared these are public holidays. And Australians will never give up public holidays. Never. Uh, it's deep-seated into our culture. So Christmas carols are one of the few pieces of music that the community knows and sings out loud. But, of course, it's deep-seated in commercial. It's, it's the big moneymaker for our retail industry. And so they'll never give up Christmas. So they retain Christmas. But having secularised society... They've de-Christianised Christmas. So you have fewer and fewer references to Jesus every year until you wind up with the religious stamp being a reindeer. And you do it by not negating, but by reframing Christmas. So Christmas is all about the children. Christmas is all about the family. Christmas is all about the great luncheon. Christmas is about giving presents. Christmas is about Santa Claus and reindeers and snow. And and so less and less you get the tableau of the family, Jesus, the baby, Mary, the mother, the animals, the crib, the wise men. And more and more you get the imagery of Santa and the uh, flying across the world and the snow and the reindeers. You can even know their names and you can sing songs about them. And those songs are as well known, if not better known, and more important. And so it wasn't the denial of Christianity, it was the reframing of Christianity that has taken place over the last 50, 60 years. 
You see the same phenomenon in the Christmas movie, what Christmas movies are about. Like, there's a Christmas movie <laughs> yes, every year. Like, yes. my favourite Christmas movie is probably Die Hard. I saw it on Saturday night. I was totally exhausted, but our family had a new set-up. So with three grandkids and with uh, uh, the family, we sat and watched Die Hard. And that's a wonderful Christmas kind of movie, isn't it? It's all about... Killing people. Killing people and mayhem and blood and guts. And- but why is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Is it because it's about John McClane saving his wife, about reconnecting with family? No. Was it just about... It's a, it happened on Christmas Eve. So there's all songs about white and snow and all that kind of thing. But it is interesting how all the more genuinely Christmas-themed movies, as it were, are really all about the things that you're saying. They're saying that Christmas is about family. Well, and it's about giving. It's about those two things, really. Love, actually. Exactly. Yeah. A whole series of relationships, most of which have gone amok, and several of which are about sex, but none of really of which are about... Jesus got nothing to do with Jesus. And there's the sequence at the end of Love Actually. Sorry, just one second. I'm just going to stop this. Well, this is ironic, Philip. The phone just buzzed, interrupting me here in the middle of uh, our conversation. <laughs> it's Alison. She's saying, if you get time, could you drop into Woolies? We need some Xmas treats for my music pupils. Um, chocolate, Santa's coins, etc. Get several packets. <laughs> That's what the season is about. Love Actually. Go back to that. It is fascinating at the end of Love Actually, which is perhaps the most powerful scene in the movie, I think. It's the scene at the airport where all the people are coming together and hugging each other and the nice music's playing. And that's what it's all about. It's about people and family getting together and loving each other. And that's really what this season is about. Yes. And I read an article in the paper about a woman who avoids Christmas because she can't stand getting together with people, especially her own family. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? That's the problem, yes. It's the loneliest time of the year. And I, I talked with uh, one of the CEOs or one of the heads of one of our casinos. It's a long story. I'll tell you another day. And he said that there were twice as many customers on Christmas Day than any other day of the year. Because when you're alone and lonely, the only thing open was the casino. And where do you go? And so he said he'd walked in there on Christmas Day and there's just all these people sitting in front of poker machines. I guess it's an example of giving, isn't it? You're giving, <laughs> you're giving all your money to the casino. Yes. How do we respond to all of this as Christians, though, to a changing society in which the landscape is very different and it's steadily different, it's steadily de-Christianised? How do you respond? Well, Christians have always wanted to use Christmas to preach Christ, Good on them and good on us for doing that. That's what we try and do. But one of the things I've noticed over the years, and this is not a reason not to be preaching Christ at Christmas, but one of the things I've noticed over the years, I've hardly ever met anybody who was converted at Christmas. I know three Muslims who came to church in order to become Christians, but they made that decision. I mean, it was just they turned up at church and said, can we find out how to become Christians? Because they just fled their home country. But apart from them, I've never met people who are converted through Christmas services. Yet there are more non-Christians, and there's been more effort put into preaching the gospel at Christmas than almost any other time. Now, pragmatism is not such that you want to say, well, therefore let's not do it because it doesn't work. But on the other hand, why is it that we're not really seeing people converted? And I think it's got to do... Because we've 
compromised our message so much. We 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 sing carols about in the deep deep winter. We we don't know actually that it was snow upon snow in Bethlehem. Bethlehem rarely ever snows, and we don't even know the date of the year. That it's it's just we've we've mythologized even our own events and. A silent night, you know. Was it a silent night when a baby's born? That's an unlikely in a manger, in a manger, in the middle of a census, and and it's <laughs> a in a way in a manger. You know, the baby no crying made. Well, what kind of baby doesn't cry? You know, I mean, one of the first things we want to do is hear the baby cry to make sure they're all right. I mean, but we've sentimentalised our message to such an extent that I doubt whether people are ever likely to hear the truth of the message of the incarnate God in the, in the context. Or we read John 1, 1 to 18, which is a marvellous passage of the Scriptures, if you know your Bible, but it's almost incomprehensible if you don't know your Bible, just being read out loud. And so we've actually moved ourselves in priorities. So more people go to church, I'm, I'm not sure across the whole of Australia, but in many places I've seen more people go to church on Christmas Eve than Christmas Day, because the family lunch at Christmas Day is much more important than anything else we're doing, like gathering in church to celebrate the Incarnation. And it takes seven hours to get ready for that family lunch. <laughs> I must come to yours. <laughs> so, Christmas Eve becomes more important than Christmas Day because the family and lunch and eating becomes more important than what we're celebrating. And so if that's the Christians... Well, little wonder we're not actually conveying the gospel to the non-Christians at the time. What we've done is we've, we've tried to accommodate to Christmas in order to preach Christ. It's good in that we reach the community. There'll be We can talk to more people. We can invite more people in. Churches are fuller than any other time of the life. We can go invite our friends down to the local park to hear carols, etc., but that's the problem. When you go down to the local park to hear carols, you're going, to, you're going to hear much more about the Santa Claus mythology than the history of Jesus' birth. And the more public our carol singing, the less and less has it really got to do with the, the truth of Christianity. The carols that they sing are conservative traditional carols, which they often abbreviate, and do not make any sense to the non-Christian world. And so we, we tried to put in the reason for the season is Christ, but you can see how it's failed because now the season is the reason. And we try and explain, well, Saint Santa Claus actually comes from Saint Nicholas and let's tell you the story of Saint Nicholas. Well, it's never worked. It's an accommodation that has just undermined what we're doing at almost every point. So now you're sounding very much, Philip, like the, the Grinch who stole Christmas from Christian ministry. Though we don't, we don't want to bother really with Christian ministry because it doesn't achieve very much and we end up just accommodating ourselves to the blandness of the season. So can we clarify then... Well, I told you I was ambivalent. That's the negative side of okay, me. Okay, all want, right. You want to say, but Philip, can I please hear the positive side? <laughs> That's my role in life, really, isn't it? <laughs> isn't that what it is? Well, you see, we're still celebrating the incarnation, and in our churches, that's what we should do. 
But to celebrate the incarnation, to celebrate anything, means fun and food and friends and family. And so we mustn't remove those things so that we'll celebrate the incarnation of God with dour and horrible kinds of events, you know. That's ridiculous. We should celebrate and we should rejoice and enjoy the great news that God has become man in order to save the world by his death and resurrection. I mean, it's just a marvellous thing for us to celebrate and to celebrate in the full. But we mustn't confuse that message or get distracted by the alternative message the world is willing to accept. So I don't want to see Santa Claus inside a church. I don't want to hear jingle bells in a kid's uh, Christmas carol. I mean, that just is... A nonsense that is just confusing the gospel and distracting us from the enormity of the message we have. But what about the non-Christian world and and contacting them? Yes, it's a marvelous time to be with non-Christian friends. It's a sociable time in our society. It's easy for my to say to my neighbours, "Oh, I went. Why don't we go down to the carols in the park?" and I'm not going to hear the gospel down there, but I'm going to build my relationship with my neighbours to talk about the gospel in some other context, some other time. And I can say to those neighbours that I have talked to, why don't you come to church with me? Because then they will hear a better expression of what the Christmas message actually is about, but they'll do other things too they'll find that you can go into this building. It's not a strange building. And they can meet up with other Christian people and see others who are there. They can meet my minister and find out that he's an interesting man to listen to. It makes it easier as a bridging step to invite them into other things. So Christmas still has a an evangelistic advantage to us, but it's a relational advantage, not a content of the gospel advantage. So do you think the phenomenon that's still quite common of churches running carol services, running special Christmas, maybe Christmas Eve or even the week before Christmas, running a special community carols event, what sort of functional use could they be within the kind of scheme you're laying out? Oh, I think it's fantastic and we should because it introduces the non-Christian community to the church community. It's a bridge for us in doing that. So one church I know a week or so ago they had 2,000 people come into their grounds and they produce Christmas carols without Santa Claus, full of joy, full of happiness, uh, great fun. The, the minister there spoke on the Christian message for five, ten minutes. He's not going to get much of a gospel across. But the advertisers would call it product placement, isn't it? Our church is part of this community. This is where the building is. That's where the minister is. This is the kind of music we enjoy come to us for other things down the track. And so I think it's pretty important to use Christmas like that. And that's in the cathedral what I would be doing, running all these carol services that I was ambivalent about, Mm. but being positive, saying, well, come in this cathedral building. Hey, the cathedral building is full of fun. It's full of Christian people. It's full of a message that's worth hearing It's not the best gospel presentation that I've ever made. I think it's one of the worst gospel presentations. But in a sense, then, you're saying its aim isn't a gospel presentation. 
its aim in the in the way that you think about the pathway that you sort of want to see people come on very often there's a first step there's an engagement get to know you relational contact step yes that comes before and leads into the opportunity to actually explain the gospel to yes. you seriously at some length and that's why some people then put santa claus and reindeers in the church building but i'm afraid that actually is a big distraction and that makes it more difficult I want them to come in and hear that we enjoy God becoming man rather than we enjoy what the world is saying. Santa and reindeer and presents and fun. Yeah, and all that stuff. Yeah, Yeah, that's not where it's at. And so the Christmas event is a useful first step often in relationship and in contact and engagement, but it's still got to be a thoroughly Christian event with Christian content. Yes, if, if I have to have Santa Claus and reindeers to celebrate Jesus' birth, I really am saying Jesus' birth is not very important, valuable, or celebratory. I want to say, you think you're enjoying things when you're you're down there talking about a mythological mythological character of absolute nonsense. You, You think you're enjoying that. You should actually hear about God become man, because this is really enjoyable. Well, that's a good talk about Christmas, After Christmas comes New Year, and certainly in our part of the world, it's a kind of time for laying down tools, reading some books, having some downtime. And so I wanted to talk about some possibilities for some summer reading. For our Northern Hemisphere people, it's even a better time for reading. Winter, they can't go out and do anything. There's nothing else to do. No, we have the distractions (laughs) of the beaches and the surf and all kinds of other things. And the cricket. They've got no excuse. Okay. (laughs) So I want to approach this in two ways. First of all, looking back over the year just past, was there a book you read that you just really enjoyed or was, you could say was possibly your favourite book of 2022? Oh, well, I have funny reading habits, as you as we've discussed previously. Um, I read a lot of books that are opposed to Christianity. You like to read your enemies more than your friends? Uh, actually, yes, yes, uh, because I... Well, for whatever reason, doesn't matter. One of the ones I found fascinating this year that I read was The Case Against the Sexual Revolution by Louise Perry. The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. By Louise Perry. Right. Louise Perry's an anthropologist and she's not a Christian, as best I can see, in what she's writing, and she doesn't write from a Christian point of view. But she has come from a feminist anthropologist non-Christian viewpoint to really attack the sexual revolution and the disasters that it's created for especially women in our society. It's a surprising book in that here is someone that is opposed to me theoretically, but in actual fact is writing what we've been saying. Well, you and I wrote a book called Pure Sex back in the 1980s or 90s or something like that. Early 2000s, yeah. Early 2000s, Mm. was it? Well, we wrote that book. And most of it is what she's saying now from a totally different perspective. It's got nothing to do with the Bible and God and creation. It's just got to do with the fact the sexual revolution's been a disaster and she outlines the ways in which women's lives have been seriously compromised and made difficult because of the sexual revolution. The philosophy of it I disagree with, and there are parts of it like where, on abortion where I'm in complete disagreement. So I'm not commending the book as here's a great Christian book. 
I'm just saying it's fascinating to see the non-Christian world beginning to wake up to what we've been saying for decades. I, on the other hand, do occasionally read Christian books, Philip. So um, my favourite book <laughs> of the my favourite book of the last twelve months, and I'm not sure whether I technically read it in December 2021 or whether it was in January this year, but it was close enough. Was David Seckham's book, The Gospel of the Kingdom? No, oh, he's a great one, is our David Seckham, isn't he? Yes, he's a very brilliant man, and this book, which is a culmination of many years of his thinking about the about what the gospel really is, how it relates to the message of the kingdom of God. And ties those things together is, I think, in my view, the best tying together of them that I, I've read. That and doesn't it, surprise me because David actually is a deep thinker, really committed to the Word of God, and a great evangelist. Always has been. And if you want to have your your thinking about the gospel just sharpened and deepened and clarified in a really helpful and a, quite an easy to read kind of way, I'd recommend if you want to do some. Summer Theology Reading, The Gospel of the Kingdom by David Seckham. I really enjoyed it. The Gospel of the Kingdom, okay. Mm -hmm. Now, um, other books that we might recommend to read over summer. I've got one. Um, this is a great book to read. You know, in the in the kind of New Year period, you're offering kind of New Year's resolution kind of time, or the year is resetting and you're reflecting on the fact that I'd like to do things differently this year, etc. Um, my good friend and colleague Ian Carmichael has written a book that's come out only recently called Busy, <laughs> tackling the problem of overload in the Christian life, of an overloaded Christian life. It's only, thankfully, a short book for obvious reasons. <laughs> yes, a long book on busyness would be a problem. Counterproductive. <laughs> uh, but he's done a great job of, of tackling the subject head on, but then coming at it at an angle that you're not expecting as the reader that actually reframes the problem for you in a really helpful way. Because he perceives very helpfully that the problem of our busyness is not really a problem of time management per se. It's really a problem of what's driving us and why we're filling our lives with things and particularly which things we're filling our lives with. Because some forms of busyness would be excellent forms of busyness. It'd be great to be busy about the business of God. But our lives get full of all kinds of different stuff, and it often reveals that we haven't figured out in our own hearts and minds what are the central driving motivations and desires and the central driving cause that we're engaged in as Christians. And so he really helpfully reframes the whole subject in a way that makes you stop and rethink your life in a way, which is what the subject of busyness really should make you stop and rethink. Well, it doesn't surprise me. Ian Carmichael's always... Always have enjoyed my conversations with Ian because he does think and think seriously about these things. So Ian Carmichael, and it's called Busy. Busy, Tackling the Problem of an Overloaded Christian Life. Uh, it's published by Matthias Media, and you can get it on their website. And let me recommend a great little book to read. Very well written, too. It's breezy and got a great sense of humour on the way through uh, during those um, January months. Now, the one I want you to talk about, Philip, which you may be <laughs> slightly embarrassed to talk about... I'm sure I am. ...is your book... Uh, the Coming of the Holy Spirit. And it's not written by Tony Payne. No, it's just written by just Philip. Just by written by Philip Jensen. By Philip D. Jensen, it says there on the cover. Which is why it's considerably longer than Ian Carmichael's book. It's also on a very big <laughs> subject. Uh, it's, a, it's a book we've talked about before, and certainly when I was running this podcast as The Painful Truth, we discussed this book and even published an excerpt from it at one point. It's finally available this week, which is great news, so you can purchase it and get stuck into it over the summer. Let me ask you the question that I think 
all authors of books would like to be asked when they're interviewed, which is simply, what's your book about? Well, other authors might like that. (laughs) My problem when you ask that is, I'll start with page one and read it to you. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. Why did you write it? Why did I write it? Well, we've been discussing the Holy Spirit on and off in, in Christian circles since the 1960s really, uh, when neo-Pentecostalism got underway. And much of the discussion has been replaying the same chess games over and over again. And I thought it's it's time for us to have a fresh look. What the New Testament or what the Bible is saying about the Holy Spirit, independently of that kind of controversy. Because now the politics of it has settled. There are those charismatic churches... There are the non-charismatic churches. We are in our tribes. We are in our camps. We all profess to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We all profess to believe in the word of God and the authority of the scriptures. So let's sit down and look at what the scripture is saying in a fresh way, in an independent way, not, not addressed from the point of view of this controversy that's raged in evangelical or Christian circles for the last 60 years, but in a, in a way which actually just takes the Bible in its own terms. And so we're not answering the questions that our controversies are raising. We're asking the question, what does the New Testament say and how does it say it? And if I may, I think that the thing that's unique about the approach or unique about this book, and I've read a lot of books on the Holy Spirit in my time, especially as someone who, who was once a full member of the charismatic movement in my youth. It's unique because it asks, how does the Bible address this question and where would you go to start with the Bible's teaching? And it goes and it starts at John 14 to 17, the most sort of concentrated, as it were, teaching about the Holy Spirit in the entire scripture. And it starts there with Jesus and his teaching on the Holy Spirit and uses that as a kind of an entry point to unfold what the Bible as a whole is saying about the Holy Spirit, and in particular, the place that the coming of the Holy Spirit has at Pentecost uh, in God's plans for Christ and the universe and us. Yes, because it's Jesus who sent the Holy Spirit. It is his Spirit. It's actually, he's called the Spirit of Jesus. And if we're going to understand the person, the work of the Holy Spirit, then the person to ask about it is Jesus, in explicitly. And so the sub... The subtitle of the book is Why Jesus Sent His Spirit Into the World. And that's what the book is answering in a sense as to why Jesus sent the spirit into the world. And you say, well, that's not my question. And I'm saying, well, that should have been your question. Because that's the Bible's question. Because that's the Bible. That's what the Bible is teaching us. Unfortunately, people have their own questions. And as we went through... There are some topics that came up over and over again and the book was going to get too unmanageable to keep on saying it. So I started putting appendices at the end, which just we could look it up. And then there were some questions that people I knew were going to ask. So I thought, well, I'll add those as appendices. So about a third of the book is a, are, are these different appendices. I've forgotten how many. There are 30, 34 appendices at the end of the book, which is about a third of the book is taken up with appendices. And so the questions and controversies, in a sense, that have divided us and are still on people's minds, they get mentioned, they get discussed at some level. Yes. But we've put them in the appropriate 
spot in some ways. Yes, and I know there will be people who will just turn to the appendices and say, well, what's, what does Philip say about this or that topic? I'll be sad. They'll do it, and that's all right. I think if I was reading the book, I'd do it. But it's sad, really, because just to look at the appendices is to miss what the Bible is itself saying. The appendices make sense in the light of what the book is about. Well, let me commend to everybody uh, <laughs> that you purchase your copy of The Coming of the Holy Spirit by Philip Jensen, because really it is, I think, going to be a very important work about the ministry, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, because it does take a different approach and an approach that starts with what the Bible itself is saying and really seeks as far as we're able to as imperfect humans to unfold what God is saying about God, what God is saying about God, the Holy Spirit. And it's not picking a fight. The fight's already there. It's trying to say, well, if we all believe in the Bible, let's have a look at what it says. Let's sit down and reason together about what the passages actually say. So let me recommend that you get hold of of this book and, and start reading through it over the over the summer months. I think you find it very profitable and useful and in, in your ministry to others. Well, I think that might do us for this episode and for this year, Philip. Um, over the next couple of weeks, we'll be taking a little bit of time off. Um, in that time, we will be in touch and we'll be in touch in particular with members of our supporters club. So one of the things that we've said uh, at the beginning of Two Ways News is that if you join our supporters club, and that's a group of people who chip in a few dollars each month or $80 a year or something like that, just to help us pay for putting out Two Ways News, um, that we send a few bonus things to you from time to time. And so we're going to be sending a, a bonus podcast to the supporters uh, over the Christmas New Year period. And we're also going to include, uh, along with that, some excerpts from some of these w- books that we're mentioning in particular a chapter from The Coming of the Holy Spirit that we'll send out to you as well. So stay tuned for more on that if you're in the Supporters Club. And if you'd like to join the Supporters Club, I know it's probably an expensive time of year. You're probably not thinking about spending more money at this time of year. But look, if you'd like to help us put out Two Ways News and contribute to those costs, you can just go to twoways.news slash subscribe and you'll see a number of options there for contributing some money to help us keep doing this work. Well, that's about it for this week. Thanks, Philip, for these first seven or eight issues that we've done together. Been fun, hasn't it? It has been fun. Uh, And how about you close for us and close our year off by praying? Yeah, sure. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for all the good things that you have given to us, but above all, we thank you for sending your Son, the Word made flesh, full of grace and truth, that we beheld the glory that is yours in him. We thank you for sending him to us, Father, because you sent him to save us by his death and resurrection. And so we praise and glorify you. We magnify your name for what you have done for us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would help us to ever proclaim his name to the world around us. And we ask it in Jesus' name now. Amen. Amen.